The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The AUA is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. Support for this series is provided by independent educational grants from Estellas, AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lanthius Medical Imaging, Merck & Co. Inc., Pfizer Inc., and Sanofi Genzyme. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor and chair of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another one of our educational podcast series with this specific podcast focusing on the AUA SUO Astro Advanced Prostate Cancer Guideline. Uh, it's my pleasure uh, to host as our guest today, uh, Dr. Michael Cookson. Uh, Dr. Cookson is professor and chair of urology at the University of Oklahoma and the chief surgical officer at the University of Oklahoma's NCI designated Stevenson Cancer Center. Uh, Mike, first of all, uh, as always, thank you so much for creating and, and carving out a little bit of time in your day uh, to join us for one of these podcasts. Well, thanks so much for having me. This is always exciting to update things and talk about some of the breakthroughs we've had recently with advanced prostate cancer. So um, why don't we just start off and and um, real basic, which is just, you know, obviously the, these guidelines that are, are multidisciplinary in nature um, obviously are, are important to make sure that, that there are stakeholders by different uh, groups. And so just maybe talk us through how, how were these specific guidelines constructed and, and what was sort of the representation from the different disciplines? Well, that's a great question. You know, the AUA has done a wonderful job of sort of embracing um, subspecialists within the urology community, but also reaching out beyond that and including um, other uh, professional cancer organizations. And so that's what the composite of this panel was. It was a um, AUA with um, membership from the Society for Urologic Oncology. We also had members from the Astro Society from Radiation Oncology and members from ASCO um, to help and assist in trying to make it a, as comprehensive. And as you know, the, the whole goal of, of advanced prostate cancer management is a multidisciplinary approach. So often in our clinics and in our um, cancer centers and wherever we care for our patients, it often involves input from the different disciplines. And so we felt it was important to have those on our So we're going to be speaking a lot about, and we're going to use this term advanced prostate cancer multiple times during this podcast. So I, I, I feel like it's important maybe just to, to get our listeners on the same page of, okay, when we're talking advanced prostate cancer, and we're going to go through a lot of these algorithms, what does that exactly mean? What, what is, in, in what context are we speaking about prostate cancer when we talk about advanced prostate cancer? Sure. Well, as we speak to these guidelines, we were specifically we, we already had guidelines for localized prostate cancer. We already had guidelines for radiation therapy and even for um, some of the adjuvant therapies after 
say, failed radical prostatectomy for radiation locally. So this guideline kind of picked up after sort of, if you think about, you've exhausted your local therapies, and now it started with the earliest manifestation, the biochemical recurrent patient, and then went through early metastatic disease, um, low and high volume metastatic patients, and then on to um, kind of that androgen insensitivity or castration resistant, both metastatic and non-metastatic. So really biochemical recurrence and beyond was what this guidelines encompassed. So, so starting from that framework, um, when you have a patient who falls into this domain, this advanced prostate cancer after local therapy, um, what was the panel's initial recommendation pertaining to evaluation of this clinical scenario and, and then obviously counseling the patient um, who's, who's going through that scenario? Yeah, so for patients with sort of a rising PSA after local therapy, um, whether that was radiation therapy or surgery, um, it was felt that we needed to, you know, at least assess them to the best of our abilities. When the guidelines first came out, they really didn't have that much advanced PET imaging. And of course, that has now sort of come forward as well. Um, these guidelines are currently being revised. And as you probably are aware, there's been some real breakthroughs in PSMA PET imaging for men with not only recurrent um, cancer, but newly diagnosed metastatic, as well as just high-risk initial diagnosis. So there's some movement there in terms of how to image them. People may not have access to the advanced PET imaging, so it is still appropriate to do conventional imaging. Bone scan and a CT scan would be appropriate, but certainly an alternative would be PSMA PET for imaging uh, to stage them completely um, in helping and making the decision about whether to institute treatment. So I think that's one thing. Of course, in the early phases of biochemical recurrence, they're, they're really asymptomatic. So you're, you're following PSAs, monitoring the imaging that you get, and you might do that in six-month interval. You might do it in annual interval, but that, a lot of that would depend on the absolute level of the PSA as well as the rate of rise or that velocity. So those are all important parts of just that clinical management before the decision to treat. So maybe one practical question as you evaluate these patients is, certainly the patient that's had a radical prostatectomy, perhaps afterwards with radiation therapy, there's no easy target organ uh, to sample histologically, right? Unless they have some evidence of metastasis that you can put a needle into. But what what is your general recommendation and practice pattern for a patient that, for example, has had radiotherapy, so prostate is still in situ, and now they have a evidence of maybe a biochemical recurrence? Where does where does sort of prostate biopsy tissue sampling fit into into your algorithm as you look at this patient here? Yeah. So again, these guidelines really kind of took over from patients who've already had their, say, salvage or secondary therapy. So let's say you had radiation therapy and you failed. Um, you might undergo you know, cryotherapy or some HIFU or some additional local therapies, but that really was not what these guidelines spoke to. Okay. Where the tissue confirmation is really an important component would be a de novo metastatic presentation patient. Um, we still see patients who present with a real, you know, a, a very um, dramatic presentation. Maybe it's spinal cord compression, back pain, that sort of thing, unfortunately. And sometimes 
you have to treat in that rare scenario before you really have all your ducks in a row. You don't have all the pathology. But in general, we highly encourage in a new patient concern cancer to obtain tissue either biopsy proven from the primary or if one of the metastatic sites is accessible and amendable to that, we, we do believe that tissue confirmation is an important component of it. But in those patients who've already been diagnosed with prostate cancer and just have a rising PSA, there, there's really, there's some exceptions, but in general, we're not really recommending, you know, resampling in that moment. Sure. So I guess as you, as you, you, you talked a little bit about tools that we have, you know, talked, you, you mentioned briefly that obviously uh, pet-based imaging, uh, particularly PSMA, which, which has really become quite quite um, widely used in the last probably six to nine months in the U.S. But what are the panel's recommendations about um, evaluating and following these patients? And and I guess my question in part sort of relies on what are the the clinical clues that you would recommend of when some of these tools should be utilized? Right, you have a toolbox. But, but there might be certain scenarios where certain um, tools should be used and, and certain scenarios where those tools are not appropriate because the yield is low. So maybe talk to us a little bit about how do you evaluate and, and follow these patients and maybe when you use some of these tools that we have in our toolbox. Yeah. Well, I think that most patients who have access to it and have... Um, you know, if it's approved through their carriers and that sort of thing, they would undergo PET imaging, advanced PET imaging, because that detection level now is down in that low range where, you know, we would never find anything with conventional imaging when we did, let's say your PSA was below one or right at one to two. And you know, we've ordered many cross-sectional images, we can do bone scans, and we would come up empty-handed. So while they're not very expensive as compared to a PSMA, they they don't really yield much. And so when you, even in those low levels, as low as say 0.5, there's, you know, 30% or more um, detection level can be for local recurrence, can be for nodal, can be for early metastatic disease. And that can sometimes change the direction of your therapy or add layers to the therapy. So I think, you know, the, the trend is going to be towards more and more PSMA PET imaging. Um, and it's shown you know, to be superior to say the Oxumin scans that we had previously, et cetera. And it's becoming um, mainstream America. So there's, you know, always that issue if you can't access it or because it's a radioactive product has to be shipped and there's some timing related issues. And we understand that. And so it's always going to be appropriate if you don't have access to that to order conventional imaging, but your yield will be lower especially in those low PSA levels. On the other end, if the PSA is very high, then of course you may well find what you need on conventional imaging. And so, you know, then, then you would have all that you would need to move forward. But most of the patients with early biochemical recurrence do not have demonstrable radiographic disease. And so you talked about, you know, tools and, and treatment, and it's still very appropriate um, to monitor them, to observe them, order it depends on the anxiety level of the patient and the clinical scenario, but probably six-month interval uh, reassessments with PSA symptom check. And then, again, depending on the absolute level, you might want to do annual imaging. You might do it more frequently based on PSA rise. You know, if, if the doubling time is really quick, then under, say, 10 months, 12 months, 
those patients are going to be more likely to declare themselves with um, a radiographic site. And so you might want to monitor them more closely. So um, I, I think you, you, you hit on one of the things that I wanted to ask you a little bit, which is, so maybe just your own personal practice, um, at what threshold, let's just take a PSMA pet, for example, what, what is your sort of individual threshold of when you find this to be value in the valuable in the advanced prostate cancer setting? 0.5, 1? I mean, obviously, the higher the number goes, likely the higher the burden of metastatic disease, the more likely the test is positive. But, but then by that same token, you probably are now treating more, more disease, right? So is there a certain threshold that you use in your clinical practice of when you like to incorporate, for example, PET imaging? Yeah, I, I think it varies for the anxiety of the patient and the duration that you've been following them. But I think anything above 0.5 is reasonable if you're, I don't like to order a test, but it's not going to trigger a treatment. So, you know, if you were going to treat them, no matter what you see on the scan, you could argue, hold and wait until your threshold is something 0.1 could be a trigger, especially if they've been through you know, surgery and radiation, and that PSA level may manifest something far different than somebody who's just, say, failed radiation therapy or, you know, so I think it matters on the individual clinical circumstance, but I like to order tests when I think it's going to lead to a treatment change. And so, for example, if I found a small volume retroperitoneal lymph node, that could lead to discussion about treatment rather than just continuing to monitor in the absence of any radiographic findings it may be reassuring and we can continue to be more conservative in our approach. So you talked a little bit about small or low volume versus high volume. Maybe just explain to our listeners what, for you, what, what is, what defines or for the panel, you know, what is the definition between um, high volume and low volume? Cause I, I think we're, that's going to tie in a little bit to some of the discussions on, you know, wh where does this algorithm go? Yeah. So in the patients that are newly diagnosed with metastatic disease, the guidelines based on some of the clinical trials recommends that we look to see what is the volume or extent of their disease. And that's really due in part to there were some differences in response to the treatments based on the volume. And so, you know, if you have more than four bone metastases, or if you have um, an, a, a bone metastases that's outside of the spine or the pelvic area and or any visceral metastases, then those patients are considered high volume metastatic. Now it's, you know, I, I, I think I'm going to be looking back on this in a few years and thinking that's silly. Why did we ever draw those distinctions? Because we'll have more tools, but we don't have that many tools right now. And so that's one of the ways that patients were differentiated on their response, for example, to chemotherapy. So the charted study, which we'll talk about in a little bit, did that high volume, low volume. Other clinical trials have picked up on that. And so where they are able to um, display the subset analysis of what, how you respond based on the volume of your cancer, they do present that. And so there can be some distinctions in ways to treat men based on that degree of, of um, metastatic burden and also based on symptoms and stuff. So I think that's where it was sort of born out of the charted study. And then so many studies have come forward looking at distinctions, if there are any, and that can help drive decisions on whether to do chemo or not. So, so going back to some of the points you've made, so let's take this patient who has a uh, rising PSA after uh, definitive local therapy. 
and uh, you get one of these imaging studies, um, let's say PSMA PET, for example, and this demonstrates no clear evidence of metastatic disease. Um, what, are the, what are the sort of options available for us as clinicians? And, and I think you mentioned doubling time in that, but, but maybe talk us through that scenario. PSA going up, imaging shows no evidence of metastasis. What are our options at that point? Well, the, the most common recommendation still remains observation for these patients because of the, the toxicity and the side effects of the treatment in the absence of high-level evidence that you're going to change their natural history. There can be some new studies that will come forward that might change our opinion on this, but as we sit here today, certainly reasonable to do observation for those men, especially those with um, slower rates of rise of their PSA and overall absolute low levels of PSA recurrence. So that's number one is observation is always an option. You're monitoring them and you're trying to manage their anxiety, but you're also looking for development of metastatic disease and our tools are more sophisticated now. So at least we can feel pretty reassured that we, we don't find anything that we really are just monitoring a blood test. Um, on the other hand, sometimes the PSA absolute number. And again, this isn't evidence-based because there's not really a, a, a single point where thresholds are crossed to absolutely treat. But in a patient or in the in, in your relationship with your patient, you may decide once it hits a certain two or four or doubling time, you would then feel like the patient and would benefit from the treatment to slow the development of what could be metastases. You'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more in the non-metastatic CRPC state with that rising PSA, but Doubling times are, you know, previews of coming attractions. And if the PSA doubling time is rapid, within the next year or two, often you will see development of metastatic disease. So to prevent that um, from happening, then it's reasonable to consider androgen deprivation therapy. And then if you do consider androgen deprivation therapy, that's one area where at least based on evidence is as uh, opposed to just doing continuous therapy for years and years. So intermittent therapy has sort of a non-inferiority or equivalence, but less side effects. Um, you can get a little break from the side effect profile of the hormonal therapy in those times where you're not receiving the drug and then quality of life is improved. So that's kind of that sweet spot, intermittent therapy for biochemical recurrent patients in whom you feel compelled to initiate treatment. So, Let's let's look. Let's talk about a slightly different scenario. This, let's go back to that newly diagnosed metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer. So, um, you have a man. They have newly diagnosed uh, or radiographic evidence of of uh, metastatic disease. Um, let's say tissue confirmation as well. So this this is clearly uh, defined as being uh, M1 disease. Um, what are the treatment options that are available that we should be offering in this newly diagnosed setting where in theory they're, they're, they're hormone sensitive, or maybe we'll just say that they're hormone sensitive. So they, they're naive to any uh, therapies thus far. What should we be offering at this juncture? So this is an area that has really changed in the last 15, 20 years. And you'd be surprised when um, we get glimpses of sort of real world practice of how many men are only treated with what we used to do, which was just say uh, a hormonal shot, an LHRH antagonist, or just an agonist. So the building block uh, or the basic treatment still involves 
you know, hormonal manipulation, lowering their testosterone to castrate level can be accomplished with an LHRH agonist or antagonist. That is kind of the step one. But in addition to that, now it's certainly recommended to consider additional treatment because of the studies that have come forward showing, you know, year or 18 months or longer of additional cancer control. If you remember the original studies where they did LHRH injectables, usually got about 18 months of cancer control and then things started progressing. But that's not the case anymore with adding additional treatment. So I think you would, of course, try to differentiate that low volume, high volume in assessing their disease. You would institute androgen deprivation therapy. And then the next steps are what to add to that. And so you do have some options on the menu. Um, and chemotherapy with docetaxel is definitely an option. And that was born out of two studies, the United States, the charted study. And then, of course, there was a, a stampede study in, in the United Kingdom. But both of those studies showed you know, significant improvement in overall survival. At the time that those came out, everyone understood and it got their attention. If you remember not so long ago, but in when the early days of docetaxel for castration resistance, the response rates were like in the three month range for differences in survival. And so while there was a signal in those advanced castration resistant patients, it really didn't get too many eyebrows raised and people still speculated, but moving it back, and that's the trend that you'll see across this whole disease spectrum, first tested in castration resistant, then moved back, we almost always see a better and more robust response. So in these patients with newly diagnosed metastatic hormone sensitive, um, docetaxel chemotherapy is certainly an option. And it's probably more favored as an option in the United States for those patients that are um, candidates for chemotherapy, as well as they have high volume disease. There's also additional androgen therapies, androgen access directed therapies. So abiraterone would be an example used with prednisone. And of course, um, we also have some anti-androgens that are, you know, 10 to 20 times more powerful than we were used to doing when we just did like conventional flutamide or, you know, th those type of medications, bicalutamide. So those bicalutamide and flutamide, by the way, are still used for flare phenomenon and early um, initiation of androgen deprivation where you're trying to avoid that. But most of the, that, that's really the extent of it. These other um, anti-androgen therapies are so much more powerful. And in this scenario, apalutamide and enzalutamide should be considered. Um, and those have, again, shown significant improvement in overall survival with the addition of those pills to the conventional shot. So you have chemotherapy, you have abiraterone, and then you have the enzalutamide and the apalutamide as options for those newly diagnosed patients certainly in the guidelines. And there's some additional stuff that we can talk about in a minute. And, and where does local therapy, what, what is the scenario, for example, radiation in the, in the metastatic setting, where, where does that play into the equation? What clinical scenario would that be, you know, a reasonable alternative for, to offer a patient? That's a good question. And, you know, we, we're, when patients present not as many in the United States present like newly diagnosed metastatic, or at least not as common as it is in Europe, but it's certainly there in our, in our practice. And, and we used to never treat the primary tumor because we just believed that, you know, the fate was going to be tied to their metastatic disease. 
However, um, a couple of studies have come forward. There were two radiation therapy studies that looked at that. And while overall survival for all comers was not found by adding radiation, there was benefit to those patients with low volume metastatic presentation. So getting back to the original question you asked, like what about sorting them out into high and low volume in patients who did meet that criteria for those low volume presentation of their metastatic burden, there's a benefit in terms of even overall survival with treatment of the primary tumor with radiation. Now, we'd like to say whatever's true for radiation might be true for surgery, but we can't say that yet because those studies are ongoing. And so in the United States, there's a, a large cooperative group trial. There's some in Europe too, but we don't have that same um, information for patients when it comes to surgical treatment. So that really should be done in the context of a clinical trial. And, and it seems like um, you, you can continue to add, even in this setting, elements of chemotherapy, with maximal androgen blockade, right? I mean, you know, so you talked about different algorithms. You could add conventional ADT, conventional ADT, but docetaxel, conventional ADT with, you know, arboraterone, enzalutamide, or apalutamide. Is there any data in just throwing the kitchen sink, you know, throw it all at somebody right out of the gate? And, and you know, what's sort of the, what's, is there any data on that? So there is data now for further treatment intensification. Some people call it triple therapy. But, you know, we thought we'd gotten as far as we could with that combination that we just spoke about. Two studies came forward in the last year, though, and one of them um, looked at ADT, docetaxel, plus abiraterone, and that was a called a PEACE-1 study, um, and it showed overall survival benefit additional. And a lot of the, and I'll tell you about the other, the other one was called Aronson's, and it took the same thing, docetaxel, ADT, and then it compared it to that regimen plus adding on darolutamide. And again, there was, you know, a, a 35% risk reduction in death from prostate cancer by adding that third therapy. So we don't know currently how to pick who to intensify that treatment in. There is definitely some added toxicity, for example, in the abiraterone, more hypertension, liver dysfunction. So it, it comes at a little bit more of a cost. And then we all know as we layer on these therapies, there's additional fatigue and things like that. So I don't think that we're ready to say all patients require intensified therapy to that degree. But as we move forward, we'll be able to figure out, certainly in the very high risk patients with high volume presentation and excellent performance status who can handle it and do want what you call the kitchen sink, triple therapy could be offered to them and you have good data to show it. And one of the things that's really impressive about these studies is like the, the, the survival rates now for these men are well beyond five years, four and five years, where I mentioned earlier, we had like 18 months of cancer control and we were just instituting shots alone for men with newly diagnosed metastatic disease. So it's really exciting. It's, you know, again, as we move it forward into perhaps even an earlier scenario or finding out like, how to profile those patients who are going to need it. There have been clues like your PSA response. If you have chemo and hormonal therapy and you, you go down low, but not quite as low as you would have expected, those people might be able to be sort of rescued early with additional therapy. But, but we're still kind of in our infancy of understanding um, how to layer those three therapies or intensify for which patients. 
So let, let's sort of transition now and let's talk about um, castrate resistant prostate cancer, so CRPC. And let's say we, we encounter men who have evidence of a rising PSA on continuous androgen deprivation therapy, and their imaging shows no evidence of metastasis. So the sort of this, um, you know, M0 uh, CRPC, what, what should be offered to these patients with a rising PSA on ADT? So this is, um, you know, still a, a fairly um, common scenario, even though PSA imaging, uh, PSMA imaging will ferret out some of those metastases sooner, um, you know, that's still there. But we know all along those men were in those other studies. They just didn't, they had conventional imaging. So that being said, um, in the absence of any demonstrable disease, there were three studies that were very similarly designed and um, compared, you know, three active agents uh, to continuous ADT and they and, and placebo, and they they looked to enrich the pot with those non-metastatic patients who are most likely to develop metastatic disease, and so they picked doubling times of less than ten months for those three studies. And in those studies, they were able to first demonstrate, which was a new clinical endpoint at the time, metastasis-free survival. They delayed the development of metastatic disease or death um, by adding those drugs. And then subsequently, um, they were able to um, show survival benefit by doing longer follow-up. So enzalutamide and, um, you know, darolutamide um, and apalutamide all have indications in that M0 space. Um, none of them have been compared head-to-head. So, you know, really you're going to pick the choice of that therapy based on factors such as if there are any obvious reasons to avoid um, a side effect profile, um, but they all have the same ultimate benefit. And 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 a lot of them have pretty similar um, adverse event profiles. There are some exceptions. Um, so for example, apalutamide, there's usually some thyroid function monitoring incorporated into it. Um, enzalutamide and patients with seizure disorders is to be avoided. Um, so some things like that. But in general, there's three active agents in that space, all that have demonstrated survival benefit. What makes me nervous is we have the PSA recurrent patient on the early end, and we're saying observations appropriate because we don't have good studies. And on this end, we know that earlier institution of therapy improve their survival. So it's, you know, a little bit of speaking out of both sides of my mouth, but that's the data so far. And and so talk to us a little bit about in this population who have, you know, metastatic CRPC, where, where does uh, germline and, and somatic uh, tumor genetic testing play a role? And, and you know, what, what is the benefit in, in gaining that information or gathering that information? So when we first, about the time we were doing the advanced guidelines, there was also uh, an increasing awareness. So for like newly diagnosed metastatic patients, you might find a germline mutation, something that you inherited on a 50-50 chance, um, 10% of the time. So in the castration resistant, that can be found even up to 25% of the time. So that's one thing is that if you look at germline and somatic mutations um, combined up to 25% of patients with castration resistant. In the beginning, now there's now we know that you don't have to wait till they're metastatic. I mean, if you're 
you're a high risk, if you have a strong family history, it's not just prostate cancer, it's colon cancer, breast cancer, lung cancer, ovarian. So there's some familial type of cancers that get our attention these days. Uh, ductal variants in early diagnosis can also be good candidates for genetic testing and germline testing. But say they've never had it, now they present with metastatic disease, that's an opportunity to do the germline testing. And then if they're castration resistant and they've never been discussed, then it should be discussed with them. What are the benefits? Um, one, uh, there's cascade. And so the family members can greatly benefit from this. And you've probably had patients like this, I've had them, where we determine that they had a mutation, say a BRCA1 or 2, they go on to have their family members tested, their daughters um, are at risk for breast cancer, ovarian cancer, they go and get treatment even before development of cancer in that disease state. So the if impact of potentially for their children or for other family members is an important one, needs to be discussed in the genetic counseling. For them personally, how does it impact? Well, we are, again, early in our development, but there are some medications, some PARP inhibitors that'll be indicated later. Right now, they're currently approved uh, sort of second, third line therapies in castration resistant. They're moving up sooner too, but that could open up some precision-based medical treatment for them um, as they go treatment advanced castration resistant disease. The somatic changes are a little different. Um, those are not what you're born with. They're more sort of selective pressures and the tumors um, mutate and develop changes. And those changes can sometimes be targetable or druggable. And so um, there's some microsatellite instability, for example, if, if that's found, then tumors can be um, susceptible to certain immune therapies and they're agnostic to the tumor type. That doesn't happen that often. You know, it's probably like three to 5%. But when it happens, it can really open up a new avenue. And so the and then the other thing is that the somatic testing used to have to be like a tissue diagnosis. You used to have to get a biopsy. Now it can be done through circulating tumor cells and a blood test. Um, so both the germline testing, which can be swab or blood, and the somatic testing, which can be done in the blood or tissue, um, are, are, there's, it's easier to get that information now than ever. So maybe talk to us a little bit about um, how do you think about and how did the panel think about sequencing of therapy? So you, you alluded to the fact that there are several trials out there, continuous ADT plus one of a variety of different potential agents, right? Whether it be uh, chemotherapy, docetaxel or uh, arboretone or enzalutamide. Um, what are some of the, the, the thought processes on how do you sequence these and pivoting from one family to another based upon uh, treatment response or, or, or treatment failure? Well, so the in the castration resistance space, we, we kind of talked about the non-metastatic CRPC. Now we'll talk about metastatic disease. Um, there is, you know, kind of an early opportunity for immune therapy with cipulosal T, but it it's a short-lived window because its approval is for those asymptomatic, minimally symptomatic patients. Um, and so if you're going to incorporate that into the mix, you really need to be thinking about it earlier in the in the decision. And then, you know, there's been studies that have shown the PSA level lower is better for the overall response. So cipulosal T is an immune therapy that can be offered for those CRPC patients that are minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic. But that that disease, that that period of time passes and then 
once patients become symptomatic, especially if they're narcotics and that kind of thing, that, that ship has sailed. And so now you're looking at more conventional treatments. Um, because many of the drugs and therapies were tried in the castration-resistant state, such as abiraterone and enzalutamide, they have an indication in that area. If you've never seen chemotherapy, then docetaxel chemotherapy is appropriate in this area too. And then now we have also radionuclide therapy. So that would be the radium 223. It can be done before or after chemotherapy, probably better tolerated if it's done before, um, but it relies on symptomatic bony lesions, no liver lesions. And again, it's, it's another tool um, to consider in these patients with heavy disease burden, particularly in the bone area. You asked about how to sequence them. And, you know, we're, we're learning, like, if you're failing, say, AR-targeted therapy, you probably should use a different mechanism of action. So, again, you're thinking more chemotherapy if they've been on the oral agents and they're failing. There's been studies looking at, like, just switching one oral agent to another, but those really haven't proved to bore out very much. They might change PSA a little bit or do something, but it's a three-month minimal change, six months, and you're you're progressing even despite that. So if you're on a AR-targeted therapy consideration of chemotherapy or perhaps the bone-targeted radium, and if you've been on chemotherapy, perhaps a switch to the to the androgen-directed uh, treatments would be appropriate. But, you know, the, the, just continuing to do the same thing over and over again is not um, proving to be very helpful to the patients, and so really discouraging that. If you failed chemotherapy and AR-targeted therapy, then there's a second, cabazitaxel is an option for you in, in that setting as well. So there's a kind of a backup chemotherapy that can be used. And then if you're failing in that regard, now you're looking at you know things that are kind of in their infancy again, very early on, but that PARP inhibition therapy. So there's two PARP inhibitors currently approved, um, rucaparib and alaparib. And they're really for that second line, third line failure. You've had therapy, you're progressing. And then, you know, if you have a germline mutation in the prostate panel, which is, um, there's usually like 15 or so of those germline genes tested or somatic, you may be a candidate for a PARP inhibitor. And then to kind of tie it in a bow, we're in the early phases of doing um, precision-based strikes with um, a medication called lutetium. So again, it's I, I think in the next coming years, we're going to see all kinds of advances, but you get a PSMA scan. If the PSMA scan has uptake and you've been through these other therapies, as we've discussed, then you may be a candidate for um, the lutetium. And so this theranostics or this delivery of, of a payload of a beta-emitting radioactive agent to the site where the PSMA was uptaking is now becoming a reality. So I think we'll have new drugs and different things linked to those PSMA scan um, positive patients, but this was kind of our first FDA approval in that space. So maybe, Mike, the, the last question I'd ask you, a topic to sort of touch base on is, as you've sort of taken us through this cascade of therapy, um, we can see that from a certain point onwards, patients are on androgen deprivation therapy 
And, and obviously, as their disease becomes more significant, they're on continuous ADT. And, and then all these other therapies cascade on top of that. And so the, the obvious question is, you know, as we're going down this treatment paradigm, um, the impact of ADT, particularly on bone health. So may, maybe just some comments on um, how we should be thinking about it, when we should be thinking about initiating therapy, and maybe some advice on what therapies should be part of our armamentarium there. So, you know, I think as a sort of a men's health initiative amongst men with advanced prostate cancer, I'm glad you brought that up. And, and bone health is an important part of it. Let me also mention cardiac health, you know, and if they're not getting lipid profiles, if they're not, they haven't had any checks on cholesterol, or if they have a cardiac history, all these therapies, the androgen deprivation can also layer on that. So I think it's our opportunity to help them live longer and better by pointing some of these things out. Bone health is part of that. When patients present, even in the newly diagnosed metastatic state, it's a good idea to bring that up to consider a DEXA scan. They're not very expensive. And we can kind of differentiate if they have osteopenia, osteoporosis, or they have good bone health. It's recommended that they do the basic exercise is always going to be recommended, weight-bearing exercise, particularly for strengthening the bones. And then calcium and vitamin D are just kind of part of our language that we tell them. You need to be taking a multivitamin and you should include calcium and vitamin D in your everyday diet. Smoking cessation is always a good idea. And then alcohol in moderation. Um, if they have, you know, as they get older, they're going to be at risk for that. As they become prolonged on androgen deprivation therapy, there's bone weakening. And so there can be bone targeted agents that can strengthen the bones if they truly have osteoporosis. Um, that's different than I have metastatic disease in my bones and I have castration resistance where even more attention to um, bone targeted agents to reduce skeletal related events like fractures and radiation and symptomatic um, situations where they're, they're not necessarily pathologic fractures, but they're, they're going to fall and hurt themselves. So, you know, adding um, rank ligand inhibitor dosmab or adding bisphosphonate, which is an infusion, can be an important part of that in certain situations where you're really, you know, trying to preserve that bone health, knowing that they're getting additional treatments, they're going to weaken their bones. Great. Well, Mike, I want to really thank you uh, again so much for your time. It's always a pleasure having these uh, discussions with you. I think you, you know, distill down, which is uh, what a fairly complex topic is for, for most urologists. I think you really distill it down uh, really easily. And, and we are very appreciative uh, for your time and your expertise. Well, thank you very much. I know this is something that I'm going to encourage anyone who's taking care of men with advanced prostate cancer to keep your eye on. The new guidelines will be coming out this year. And, you know, there's so many new advances in these areas that um, it's exciting for men to think we're going to be able to um, improve the quality of their life and the length of their life. So it's, it's really in our best interest to stay on top of it. And thanks for inviting me. Great. Thanks so much. Uh, for our audience, thanks again for your, your time. And I would certainly encourage you uh, to go to auanet.org slash university uh, for any additional um, uh, material uh, in this space. Mike, uh, again, thanks so much and have a wonderful weekend.